Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. In this bonus episode, we're sharing a discussion with Antoine Bousquet, Reader in International Relations at Birkbeck College, University of London, and Jairus Grove, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Hawaii Research Centre for Future Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Antoine and Jarris gave a talk titled Martial Autonomies, Rise of the War Machines at the Media Futures Hub in September 2020. This is the Q&A that followed, conducted live on Zoom with questions offered by the audience via chat. One thing that did strike me though, as you were both talking, is the feedback, the unpredictable feedback loops and relationships that arise between um, developments in military technologies, strategies, events, um, and so on and so forth. Like, you know, where what Jarris was just talking about, for example, um, with, you know, what would be the response to us to a massive, um, perhaps almost insurmountable high-tech robot, um, killer robot force might be to just go, well, stuff that, which like also seems to me in some ways to be one of the fundamental counter arguments to the idea that, um, you know, every major nation having uh, lethal autonomous weapons would somehow make war like safer and friendlier because then the robots would all like go off and fight each other, um, which of course like countries have never settled disputes by playing chess, like not on that scale anyway. And so why would they, you know, um, have a game between robots essentially um, be, be the means of resolving conflict and instead like you would look for the, the alternative response, um, you know, the way that steps outside of the logic of what is happening right now. Um, and that in some ways seems to connect into some of the threads that you guys covered around what the, the kinds of problems that autonomous weapons and drones um, and military technology in general tries to manage um, and also how that relates to developments in military thinking. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of thinking in particular about like one of the one of the sort of figures that hasn't um, circulated so much through the discussion yet, which is, you know, the the um, the emergent terrorist threat, right? That there are these sort of threats out there that that need to be um, uh, dealt with before they arise or as they arise um, or in advance of their arising. And and so in some ways, like this is this um, ties in for me, at least into this question, these questions of autonomy and automation quite significantly, because, you know, the structure of the military of militaries is top down hierarchical systems um, doesn't uh, doesn't handle that type of um, you know unpredictable eruption or potentially unpredictable eruption of violence, um, and so you know the drone or the fighting unit, perhaps special forces unit or whatever, made autonomous um, is perhaps in some ways like in 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 concert with with those types of. Um, uh, the imagining of those types of threats as, as sort of the major threats. Uh, there are um, a couple of really great questions coming up um, in in the chat, and I'll try to kind of organise them um, uh, as we go along. So um, one thing that I think um, fits neatly with where we've just sort of ended up in, in relation to 
drones and sensing and um, wider environments and so on is from is from Adam Fish, um, who does a lot of research on on drones um, from an uh, um, ethnographic perspective and he works on conservation and oceanography um, in relation to drones. And so Adam's asked for uh, there's surprisingly little being said so far um, about the ecologies, the savage ecologies, perhaps um, elements and other forces that drones sense. And so are the sensed others merely victims? Um, uh, and how do drones co-create with the elements they are suspended within and the agents they sense? So yeah, if either of you have, have thoughts on that, it'd be great. I could say a quick thing, uh, which I think is a, a bit of a historical analog, which is, you know, in, in the mid nineties, really through almost 2000, there was a huge effort to uh, declassify, particularly all the CIA satellite data of, of Southeast Asia. Um, because it provided one of the most important baselines for not just deforestation, but also the loss of coral reefs, development, uh, where development was taking place. And the irony was they still wouldn't let it go. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, at the same time, they were arguing about whether or not to let go of maps about where they dropped omelets and things like that in Laos. And, um, you know, I mean, I mean, it was a fight, but there has always been this dual use character and this sort of environmental character that could if not be positive at the very least, uh, show us something about the kinds of change that not just war, but, you know, capital um, created in regions. And so, no, I, I don't think that the thing that's sensed is always a victim. Um, uh, but, I, but I do think more than I used to um, that the opportunities for play reversal um, and uh, resistance um, become increasingly difficult as humans lose contact with one another. Uh, and I, I know that sounds like a really nostalgic thing to say, but there, there's something, you know, maybe it's just the fact that I've been living on Zoom for seven months, but there is something about the encounter between people and other non-human animals and I think even machines, the physical encounter, and this relates back to the sort of Andy Clark uh, point that, that Antoine made of how extended minds work, right? Cognition is, is a collective enterprise and it doesn't, it's not the same when it's mediated. It's not to say that it isn't also a collective enterprise, but I, I do believe that there are components um, which are not engaged in the same way in terms of the tactile smell, all sorts of different ways that memories are formed. Uh, and so while I don't want to reduce the image or the sensed um, to, to merely an object in an uninteresting way, um, I think we would, we would be remiss to not really think about the just like massive neurocognitive transformation that happens to soldiers, policymakers, citizens, activists, uh, insurgents, um, when the narrowing of encounter takes place. Um, and that, again, it is another kind of encounter, but I, I think it's a, it's one that is neurocognitively radically different. Um, and so I, I'm not so sure that for instance, even so, so-called good drones, right. Um, that really makes sense to me in that sense. Cause I, I want to know what kinds of publics they create, what kinds of multi-species economies they create. Um, and they, I, I think they tend to narrow or narrow on two terms. One, which is they narrow the terms of, of encounter and engagement, but they also narrow the numbers of users. So I think about the, the number of times that 
um, human rights organizations and, and environmental organizations have made almost identical arguments to the argument the Vice Admiral of the Australian Navy actually made to me about why they wanted to get in the drone business. It's because it freed up so much time uh, to do other things, right? Really what they meant is it freed up so much time to downsize, um, to have fewer and fewer people involved. And so if you think that organizations are actually about building the process of peoples and communities and relations, um, then needing fewer isn't really an advantage. Um, and so I think, I think that actually cuts us as close to the quick of war as it does with politics or other kinds of engagement. Yeah. I wanted to respond to sort of a different line of thinking, some of the things that Jared was saying in his previous comments and, and, and yourself as well, Michael, which, which is, I mean, something that's close, close to our heart, Jared and I, um, and that we were, you know, was that the impetus behind the, the special issue we edited with Nisha Shah and Security Dialogue on, on Becoming War, which is to think about, you know, to ask the question of what it means to think about war as an autonomous realm in itself. So if we're going to think about autonomy as the giving itself of its own laws, you know, can we think of war in this fashion? And I think this goes against the grain of a lot of social and political thinking, which sees war as derivative of, of other orders. It's a derivative of the economic or the political or the psychological or, or whatever it might be. And of course, uh, framing it in these ways raises different kinds of issues about how you might solve the problem of war. You know, if you have a more equitable socioeconomic distribution, then war will, will go away. Um, and, and our problems therefore do not have to be uh, war-centric. War well, I think it's an important question to ask whether that's, that's right and whether the problem of war is not a deeper one. Um, so what would it mean to, you know, uh, develop a kind of polymero-centric form of uh, thinking? And I think one of the questions for that would then be, well, if we want to treat war kind of in, its, in an autonomous, as an autonomous realm, what would be its internal dynamic? And I think there's a good case to make that escalation. And you find that, you know, in, the, in, in, in Clausewitz, you know, our kind of philosopher king of war, who, who makes the picture in early on in, on war that, you know, war has a natural tendency to escalate towards the extremes. And really what acts as a break on it, in terms of Clausewitz in his mind, is the kind of geographic, temporal, ultimately technical restrictions on war. Of course, many of these restrictions have since evaporated since he was writing in the early 19th century, which might, work, might well leave us just with just the bare logic uh, ever closer to being realized. We find this idea of escalation in the more contemporary work of Paul Virilio, of course, who, you know, and through the form of speed uh, and this kind of continual acceleration of society, which is driven in his mind primarily through uh, the military and while what is more of an accelerant than basically the mutual escalation of, of belligerents. We find this in the, uh, in the work of Friedrich Kittler, he also sees the emergence of media are basically a product of war acceleration. So, you know, we might want to think about that when we think about the evolution of, of drones or autonomous weapon systems or AI and so on, and how this fits into this wider historical tendency towards escalation within the, uh, the war sphere and what that might mean if we think more broadly as es of escalation as a key principle of technological and political development. And of course, that maybe raises the question of whether what we are dealing with are not kind of discrete militaries in the end, but a, but a war system, a kind of globalized war machine in which, uh, you know, to use Deleuze Guattari's phrase, states might become mere appendages to it, or in many cases also non-state non, -state, uh, uh, non -state actors. So I think that's, uh, 
you know a question that i think is important to us to think about you know how we central this discussion on war and what are the dynamics inherent to war that might account for some of the things that that we're seeing and and where that might lead us to thanks yeah yeah sorry go no, I was just gonna. I was just going to commend that that um, that special issue um, that the two of you and Nishisha um, edited of security dialogue. I'm guessing that a number of people um, on the uh, at this seminar um, are, fam- are familiar with it. But if you're not, it's a really um, it's really fantastic. And and the introduction the three of them uh, wrote on this idea of becoming war is quite powerful in kind of turning turning on its head. Um, some of the ways that we would understand war perhaps as like an irregularity um, and instead kind of repositions um, uh, repositions war not not um, uh, not to say it is like well we just have to accept that there's war all the time and that it sucks but but rather tries to just like um, uh, um, shift the way we think about the relationship between between war and 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 other human structures and activities Um, okay so um I did, you know, maybe picking up on on some of the those um, themes that both of you have have um, articulated in in your responses. There is uh, there's a question from um, Chris Ayers who asks, um, uh, "Do you see a difference between agency and intention?" And um, Chris has said here in the chat that she's thinking um, about this question in the context of post-human and new materialist new materialist readings of of agency. So, does agency and intention kind of function differently within um, these drone assemblages or apparatuses? No, obviously, in part because she was my advisor, but um, also just because her work was great. Like, I was I was in grad school when um, Jane Bennett was writing Vibrant Matter, and you know, and and Bill Conley was working on the work that would sort of become the the most new materialist of his work, right? So the sort of trilogy on on becoming uh, in the world, um, and there was a real discussion, I think or more than a year about whether or not to hold on to the word agency at all. Um, and Jane really made the decision to hold on to it. She, she didn't want to let it go. And her reason I thought was a very good one, which is that to, in some sense, give in to a certain post-humanist critique of agency was to, to undermine how much agency was this collective enterprise, right? So yes, we could sort of reject agency or even intentionality. Uh, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. Um, if what we wanted to do was undermine the sort of enlightened subject, or what we could do is show really just how unbelievably complex agency was. And I, I, I always thought that was a really important move, and I, I thought was better in some sense than the sort of Latour move towards Actons. Um, I thought Actons, I think, sort of bypasses trying to think about why it's not anthropomorphism to see agency all over the place, it's sort of anthropocentrism to not see it all over the place. Um, so that's sort of part one. Um, part two is, you know, Bill went through a similar thing with intentionality, decided for Nietzsche and the Louisiana reasons to hold on to the concept of will. Um, and I think that will is actually a very important counterpart to intention. Intention, I think, requires too much self-reflection, which is almost always very late to the party. Right? We have all kinds of it, but it's generally the day later when we're like, oh, I really wish I had said that. That was my comeback. Um, right? Intentionality is, a, I think it's a post hoc fallacy, but I think that will is a, is a, is a, is a real force. Uh, and the Spinozist, Whiteheadian, you know, Isabel Stanger in and me says that will is, is a kind of drive towards creativity and 
and to expenditure, which is another component of war, which we haven't really talked about, but a lot of people may be drawn to war in this kind of will of expenditure. Um, I often wonder, for instance, that in, in, in a dark way, how much the sort of neo-fascist resurgence in the United States is precisely because liberalism, in some sense, banned the, the capacity to think that acting out uh, was something worthy of doing. Um, and that's something that certainly the African-American community in the United States never forgot. Um, but uh, for those sort of racist enclaves that, that bought into a certain vision of post-political America, um, it's not surprising that the generation just after them came resurging back in the worst possible ways of wanting a fight on the streets, right? Think about the Boogaloos, for instance, in this case, who seem to want chaos more than they want a particular outcome. Um, but a chaos frame within a, a really toxic white masculinity. So, you know, even then, I, I'm not sure I would call them intentional, but they are willful. Um, and so I don't know, that's, that's how I'd want to think about it is that, you know, I like new materialism when it thinks in terms of will and, and when it thinks in terms of agency as process, um, as opposed to a capability. I generally cop out and just use the term efficacy, but um, it's just because I'm not as bold as Jane. I don't have anything to add to those comments other than, you know, to say that these questions of agency and intentionality are sort of very complicated questions uh, that we can't easily adjudicate. But that leads me to a broader point, I think, which is, you know, this, I think, when this applies to questions of war agency and, and AI, which is to say that I, I think in many ways we're still at the stage of trying to ask the right questions. And, you know, regard to the theme, uh, today's theme, you know, the, I'll, I'll reference the, the campaign to ban killer robots, which I think is a very well-intentioned and, and noble enterprise, but I think it's, it's going to miss the mark. This is just not going to achieve anything it wants to achieve because the ability, we, the conceptual frameworks that are being used to campaign on this space, I think are very poor fit for, for the reality we face. Uh, AI is not, you know, um, it, it's going to be very difficult to draw the lines in the ways uh, that, you know, this campaign and, and, and wants to do so. That might be frustrating to say this, to say that really we're, we're not at the point of being, we're still at the point of having to ask the right questions and might sound you know, terribly academic to say so. But uh, given, and given the, the parallel situations we, we find ourselves in today, we, we might want to be able to act now, but, but I, I do think that we are still grappling to understand the reality, that, that, that the emergent reality. And, and if we don't ask the right questions, if we don't have the right conceptual tools, I don't think we're going to uh, uh, get much of a grasp on it. Switching gears just just slightly, um, Mitch Goodwin um, asks uh, whether we can consider code, so bots, executables, virals, and so on, that are stealthy and lie in wait, that swarm across networks. Can we think of these kinds of things as drones or drone-like, um, even though they might not, I suppose, have the, the material encasing? Yes, but no. No, I, I mean, I, I think this is one of those moments where I, I wish the drone weren't quite so much the center of the conversation. Because the reality is drones are only doing more interesting things than they were doing in World War II precisely because of that litany of, of different kinds of interactive informatic capabilities, uh, which can be communicated at speeds such that they could be transferred from materially encased thing to another materially encased thing. And so I would rather not think of them as drones so much as think about a 
rainforest-like ecology of new informatic entities, um, which maybe spend some time in drones, help design drones, help do experiments so that drones don't crash, uh, change the machine vision of the drone. I, you know, I, this actually gets to the second question Mitch asked about art, you know, um, like, is there a role for art and war? This is precisely the role of art and war. I mean, the reality is that a lot of these algorithms and a lot of, of these bots, like they're promiscuous to say the least, right? They're as useful in, in generating art as they are in generating war and, and vice versa. And I don't have a strong sense of that. I'll only say that when Lily was developing the machine brain interfaces and the isolation tanks and the dolphin attack programs, he was doing it because he was convinced that learning to communicate with dolphins was the only way to get outside the anthropocentric circle and really get at the tough questions Heidegger was trying to ask. Uh, because until we could interview another intelligent species about ourselves, philosophy was at a dead end. Um, the fact that he could have that idea at the same time that he was torturing animals and humans and developing one of the most sophisticated arms of the war machine and hoping without hope uh, that that machine wouldn't just allow us to interview dolphins, but that it would make us capable of being able to interview aliens if we ever encountered them. Um, because it was about trying to bridge cognitive capacities, uh, which were radically different. And I will say another one, um, uh, an Andean uh, culture that mostly used whistles because uh, there was not enough oxygen often for language. Um, so he was also interested in like radically different human forms of life. Um, but that that sat so comfortably <laughs> uh, in a lab filled with monkeys with things screwed in their heads. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, art and war is not a fine line. I it's funny when, uh, when, when I started, um, you know, researching and thinking about drones several years ago, um, you know, I, I had this, uh, my initial, um, you know, thought was like, oh, how many things can we call a drone? Um, and, and, you know, how many things a drone like? Um, but actually like the, you know, the longer I've um, read and thought and kind of, and, and um, researched into these things, the, the, um, that seems to me to be a, a question that um, for me anyway, like you end up just chasing your tail in a way because it doesn't actually, what, what you're, what for me, what that does ends up doing is kind of repeating. It, it, it traps you analytically um, because you're then, uh, you're then caught within a within a desire to kind of frame things according to a keyword, which is actually a problematic keyword anyway, because you know we all, as you both in different ways started this talk with, like let's not obsess over the drone. Um, and yet, so so if we're looking for drone like and drone objects and so on, uh, drone logics and so on, um, uh, can be a um, a risky path to go down. Um, Antoine, did you want to hop in? Yeah. So I mean, I, to, to to abandon this direction, I think our categories are too broad. You know, the drone is, we, we don't, the broadest, the drone is too broad a category or the question of AI is too broad. And yes, we've, we've been talking in kind of very broad brush terms today and now we can say some general things, but ultimately, you know, the, the kind of empiricism that we, we advocate in, in, in the Becoming War special issue is precisely to kind of get our hands dirty and to really get into the specifics of, of, of socio-technical systems or, or uh, uh, military ones in, in particular. So with regard to, you know, um, software or viruses or other forms of malware or code, I don't think we should come to them with the preconception that we know what a drone is and we're going to, we're going to 
layer this on top of the analysis. We need to understand the specificity of the forms of code that we're looking at, the, what forms of behavior that they, they have, what kinds of eco ecologies they participate in. And for associated with the question of whether they are intelligent or not, I think to me to be a little bit of a, kind of a, of a blind alley. We should just think about what they actually do uh, and leave the kind of metaphysics of intelligence and, and sentience to, to, to the side on, on that basis. So yes, we're very much in a favor of kind of broad kind of speculative theory, but also conjugated with kind of a attention to detail. It's, in fact, to my mind, one of the biggest challenges we face as a, you know, as a civilization, and I mean this in the kind of most broad, broad sense possible, is, is to, we need to kind of, uh, you know, we need to bridge the, the gap between the technical cultures and, and, and you know, and, and the kind of wider sphere of the humanities. It, you know, we, within the humanities, social sciences, we, we've got a kind of long critical tradition of, of technology, but a lot of it remains at, at a distance and a, 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 with a fair, with amount of generality. And if we don't reconnect more broadly as a culture between the technical side, if we don't have technicians thinking about these big philosophical normative issues, and if we don't have uh, the, you know, the philosophers, the thinkers, and those the wider populace grapple with technical specificity, then I think we, we, we're very unlikely to be able to uh, overcome or face the challenges that we, that we are encountering today. Uh, which is, which is, of course, not to kind of um, discard the, the value in, in finding likeness and similarity and, uh, and so on, I suppose. I've got a question from Ari Eisenstadt who asks, um, uh, what are the implications of quantum computing um, with drones or perhaps with war more generally? And, and is there a good way that it could be regulated? Uh, I think it'll have very little impact on drones. Um, I think that what quantum computing is good at is increasingly uh, in regards to the technologies that spin off from the computing. So the ability to control uh, more supple scales of matter. The one area of that which I do think will significantly impact drones is not necessarily good, uh, which is that quantum computing research has allowed us to expand um, the detail of the electromagnetic spectrum, um, which allows for forms of communication um, and radio signaling and jamming, which could, I think, be pretty catastrophic or incredibly you know, eruptively productive. Uh, for drones, but I don't think it's going to have a real impact on the artificial intelligence. Um, but that's just my my gut. It's um, big centralized computers as opposed to big network systems. You know, quantum computing is a big centralized computer, therefore I don't think it's going to produce as much as big network systems. And Doug Kahn uh, asks, um, diesel electric subs promised lesser state players to submerge undetected nuke um, sub-style uh, weapons long enough to threaten naval invasions and shipping lanes and, and so on. Um, is there an equivalent for lesser state, non-state actors, et cetera, um, in, in potential pack behaviors or uses for, for drones and in, in drone futures? Well, to just address that question in, in general terms, the, the, there's no doubt that drone technology is already tricking down to, to non-state actors and it's not a technology that, that states Will hold a monopoly on. Um, I mean, there's a general, I think, a general trend that we're faced with, which is that the the, the technical advances are, in, in many ways, is raising the kind of uh, or well, lowering, if you want, the barriers to entry into into organ, organized violence. And this is not a new story. We could already see that in you know the, the prevalence of civil war or uh, uh, 
civil strife in, in, in parts of the world where effectively very limited numbers of malcontents with automatic um, machine guns can, can be, create significant problems, which is why the, you know, the, the, the process, kind of the virtuous process, if you want to look at it that way, between state formation and, and, and the development of military force in the early modern period is, is one that's not necessarily going to be replicated uh, going forwards. So there's no doubt that the, that, uh, the technology is not one that will be uh, held for very long, always being held for very long by, by state actors and like, say, perhaps nuclear weapons, which would be another example. But even then, I think, you know, again, this kind of category is too, are too crude because it really, if we, if we extend this to the question of artificial intelligence, again, I think we get a variegated picture. If we think about quantum computing that we just raised, that's going to remain largely a state monopoly for a long time because it's very expensive. It's requires large installations and so on and so forth. And we still don't know exactly what the what, what quantum computing will deliver, but if it delivers major uh, artificial intelligence breakthroughs, these are not ones that are going to be easily accessible to non-state actors. On the other hand, you know, many processes are already available to actors, the non-state actors, whether it's data mining or uh, you know the generation of fake uh, fake imagery and, and, and so on. So uh, I think we again we can't speak in too broad terms. We have to be quite specific here. Yeah, I'll just throw it quickly that North Korea bootstrapped its own drone program entirely from scratch. Uh, it doesn't seem to have depended on other drones and it did it relatively quickly. So if we were to compare, for instance, getting something to escape velocity to enter the atmosphere versus drone capability, um, it's, it's just, it's apples and oranges in terms of the amount of capital investment and technical capability. So it's, it's like, it's new, it's diesel subs to the power of a hundred in terms of expansion and accessibility. Bill Arkin um, has a really great book, like popular trade book, I guess, about, about the development of, of drone systems and, um, and uh, data systems in, in contemporary war that, that really does show like th th just the level of ad hoc um, you know, bootstrapping that even occurred in, in the US system and the, the strain that that put on bandwidth and, and network infrastructures and so on, um, which really does, which sort of tells you, um, I think a lot about um, how we ended up where we are technologically um, with, with drones um, right now. Um, uh, Catherine uh, Brimblecombe Fox asks, um, what would thinking about censored drone or robot sensing rather than using sense how would that change perceptions of drone capabilities and human um, reactions and interactions with them? Um, so I guess this is a question about um, about maybe like not not collapsing um, sensing as a as a kind of human phenomena into what the technological can do and as a sensor as or as sensed. What would I want to say about that? I think in part I, this is another one of these places where I don't want metaphors to be. Uh, the driving force. So we we like to call machine vision vision because what it does is it does something like seeing, um, but it doesn't actually do something like seeing at all. Um, and it also enables all kinds of different capacities that we'll, we would never possibly have. And so I, this is, you know, this is the empiricist streak in, in Antoine and myself, which is I want us to start thinking each machine event on its own terms. Um, and so I, I think we would do well to spend a lot of time, and this is where I think art actually plays a really significant role, um, to create phenomenological experiences for humans, to experience both the limitations and capacities of machines uh, sensorily, um, and how disorienting it is. 
um, or, or what gets seen. Uh, and I think opportunities to do that um, and to build those kinds of human machine interfaces, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily put a, ethics in the right direction, but it gives us something to work with um, in even having the conversation in the first place um, it, that we're just not having, right? So, you know, if conversations about discrimination really only make sense if you can see like a drone. Um, and uh, I, would, I would rather see research developed there to bring that very question to the fore um, than to try to figure out how we could sort of conceptually deconstruct what we meant by censored or censoring, which I think is probably what she's up to because she makes really cool art. So. And that's it for another episode of Drone Futures a limited series on the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon, and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.